But we're in part 36 of our series, having gone through Revelation line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And when we wrap this up, of course, we have Russ sharing with us some vision piece next week. And then we will be launching the book of Second Peter to close the year out. It's a very short book. It's a very, uh, I think it's about three part series. It's something that we hit real fast. It ties into these and makes everything practical. It starts talking about if Jesus is returning, what lives ought we to live? And so it's going to go very much into uh, practical living discussion. So um, let's take a look at this. Um, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 22 um, and starting at verse seven here in a moment. But let's look at the fill in the blank in front of you. Um, I entitled tonight's uh, tonight today's message on the edge of beginning. And I have a question to begin with. And just to just to highlight out, I was thinking about this last night as I began to preach this. I, I have a pet peeve about Bible studies that ask super obvious questions. I don't know why that bugs me so much, but they'll go. So when Jesus said he loved the person, what do you think he meant? You're like. I think he meant he loved the person. Okay, can we move on, please? Okay, I, that drives me crazy, all right? So when I ask you these questions at the beginning of things, I'm trying to have you spin the question around in a bunch of different ways and say, how would I answer this immediately if it was asked to me? And how would I be able to wrestle with the implications of what it says? So here's my question for you to begin with, and it's this. How soon is soon? Jesus said he's coming soon. Disciples said he's coming soon. It's 2,000 years later. How soon is soon? Were the disciples wrong? Was Jesus wrong? Because here we sit 2,000 years later, and in my calendar, that doesn't sound like soon. So how soon is soon? What do we do with that? We are going to be wrestling with that throughout because all this book closes with is I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, period. So whatever it means to us may well be different than what it means to God. And I think to myself, as I'm looking through these prophecies and trying to sort it out, it seems like Jesus is trying to be very clear. And yet I'm confused. Why am I confused? Am I stupid? Is it that I don't have a grasp on how God talks? Is it that I don't know my Lord? What is wrong with me? How come I can't seem to figure out how this is going to go down? And to make myself feel better, I always have to put myself up against somebody else that's stupid, and then I feel better. So I began to examine how it worked in the Old Testament the first time. As I thought, well, well, the first time the Messiah showed up, how'd that go? Did everybody have that one figured out? And I was like, well, all right, I feel better about me already. Right? No, they didn't understand what it was about. They completely missed it. They missed the boat entirely. Why? Because it was confusing. It was vague. It was completely enigmatic, right? Mysterious. It almost seems like a puzzle. Now, when we look backwards, we're being totally unfair. We look back at the Old Testament prophecies and we go, how did they not know? Come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Have you tried looking at them forward? Have you tried looking at them as if you were reading it for the first time and didn't know anything about Jesus? You really thought you knew what they were talking about. Let me give you an example. It says at least this. In the Old Testament, when speaking about where the Messiah would rise up from, they use the following terms, Judah, Bethlehem, Galilee, Nazareth, and Egypt. So where's the Messiah coming from? If you only read one passage, you think he's an Egyptian. He's rising up out of Egypt. 
Now, no one would have ever figured out how it really went. How did it really go? Do you remember this? Well, indeed, Judah is the southern portion. And indeed, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, he immediately, because of a fear, his whole family got moved down to Egypt. Then they moved back out of Egypt after a very short amount of time, came back up, but did not settle in Bethlehem or the southern portion. They went to the northern portion, which is a region called Galilee. And in Galilee, they settled in a city named Nazareth. Now, who in the world was supposed to figure that one out? No way. All you know is that all these different territories are being mentioned and they're all thrown out there and you're supposed to figure it out. They had no idea. They pretty much had to hang on the one that was the clearest prophecy, which was what? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's a line of David thing. All right, so they're going to hang on to that one. They didn't understand all the rest of it. Boy, did it seem complicated. As a matter of fact, as you look through, the timetable seemed to suggest not two events, but one event. For example, you read through and the Old Testament prophets would say, and the Messiah will come and set up his kingdom. That looks like one event to me, and if I'm reading it like an ancient Jewish guy, I'm reading it straight through. Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom. That's why everyone was disappointed with Jesus, because that's the natural read. They had no idea there was a huge gap between the two, that Jesus was going to come down as the Messiah, and then he was going to return as the victor and set up his kingdom. Who knew that? We only know that looking backwards. We'll look at things like, well, isn't it so cool that you look in the Old Testament prophecies and right there, David in his psalm is saying he was pierced for our iniquities. How amazing is that they talked about the crucifixion before crucifixion was ever put in use in their day. Wow, that's amazingly clear and prophetic. And the same phrase that says he was crushed for our iniquities. So did a big, huge rock fall on him? Why you look at the pierced part? Why didn't you look at the crushed part? Oh, we think it looks so clear. It was not clear at all. The timetable showed not one Messiah, but two in their estimation. They saw the suffering servant who was supposed to die for the sins of the world. And then they saw the mighty victor. And they didn't know how they worked out, but they at least knew there had to be two. They had no idea that it was one guy coming back. So are they less intelligent? No. Are we less intelligent because we don't have it figured out? No. Why is it so vague? Because God wants it that way. What they had to know was that the Messiah was coming. Be alert. Be ready. And then put the pieces together as they arrive. Is it any different in the book of Revelation? Whether we understand it or not. Whether our timetable seems to suggest one thing or not, the fill in the blank in front of you is true. How do I know it's true? Because the Bible told me so. Here's the fill in the blank in front of you. The return of Christ is imminent. The return of Christ is imminent. What does imminent mean? It means coming soon. It means right around the corner. 
the, Christ, the return of Christ is imminent. Everyone wants to mess around and try to talk about, well, what John really meant was that once the signs start occurring, then it's going to be fast. And other ones go, well, it doesn't really mean fast. It means uh, quickly approaching, meaning he's, he's, he's on his way. And, and everybody has all these ways to try to explain it away how 2,000 years have gone by. I'm going to tell you that from God's perspective, he means soon. And it literally means soon. All the disciples ended up dying, assuming Jesus was coming on their watch any second. And nothing is different throughout history. We are in the exact same place. Is that how God wants it? You better believe it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it that way. Let's take a look in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Um, we're going to read 7 through the end, then we'll pray for the word and tear it apart. Uh, last book in the Bible. Uh, last page. Here we go. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Now I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Okay, if anybody underlines in your Bible, maybe you do that, you kind of highlight and underline and stuff. I want you to underline every time it talks about Jesus coming soon or it's near because he says it a lot. All right. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to do vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go out through the gates and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you. This testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from the pro from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life. And in the holy city, which are described in this book, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we lift our lives up to you to mold and to shape. We ask that you would illuminate scripture to us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might understand and see that it would become obvious the parts that we need to know. Lord, we are not God and we do not pretend to be God. We don't need to know everything. We only need to know what you want us to know. And right now, Lord, we know enough to love you. We know enough to fall at your feet and call you king. If there's anything else you want us to know, 
please reveal it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, I am coming soon. So what does soon mean? Right? However it fits, it's soon to God. Now we're going to talk a little bit in Peter where it says God is not slow as you think of slowness. But understand he is patient and he's waiting for repentance. So in other words, God's one plan to redeem and scoop up his children is now in a waiting mode for his other plan, which is what? To go redeem those that do not know him. So he has two plans in effect. One has to yield to the other. So the reason it seems to be taking a while is merely because of the grace and patience of God. So you have loving God coming and loving God holding off. Either way, you have loving God. Behold, he says, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That means he who guards it personally and in leadership. You will be blessed if you hang on to it, guard it, and don't let it be made into something that it's not. I hope you understand that as we've been going through this series, I've been very ferocious about a few things. One is not allowing this to become a divisive book. I will not allow this book to become a fighting book. My job is to guard what it's all about. It's about Jesus. We're going to keep it about Jesus. It's about him being in control. We're going to talk about that. It's about him being on the throne. It's about that. We will hold it there. We are not going to go off on academic struggle and sit there and try to beat somebody out in an argument. This is not about debate. This is about life change. So it's our job. It's your job as every believer to guard the prophecy of this book and do not let it be used for something it's not supposed to be. Then he says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Do you remember how many churches this was supposed to be sent to? Seven, the seven churches at the beginning, remember? All those guys knew John. John was famous. He was famous as a pastor. He was famous as a disciple. He was famous as an apostle. As a matter of fact, everybody knew John that he was writing to. And they knew his heart. They knew what he was like. They knew his character. As a matter of fact, he was known all around as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. They went, man, this guy was close with Jesus. He was part not only of the twelve, but he was part of the inner three. He was the one leaning back against Jesus' chest the night that he was betrayed. The last meal that they had together. But he was more than that. If you know his character, have you ever read the Gospel of John? Then read the three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's pretty creative in his titling, right? No, he didn't write this title. I'm just kidding. Have you read any of these? This guy's hardcore. He writes more black and white than almost any of the other writers. He says stuff like, if you're a Christian, you'll stop sinning. That's it. Move on. You're like, what? What are you talking about? And he says things about you are either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. Do you remember the little nickname he and his brother got? James and John were the sons of thunder. Why? Because they were the ones who walked along with Jesus and they're like, I hate those people. Let's just burn them all. You're like, okay, guys, calm down. We're not going to burn them all. All right. That was James and John. This is not a fluffy little poetry guy who just decides to write cool things. This is John. 
He says, you know me, you know my character. If I tell you I saw some weird stuff, I saw some weird stuff. If I tell you that God told me this, I'm not going to mess around with that word. If I tell you God told me something, God told me something. I saw these things, I heard these things, and I've been true in how I've communicated them to you. How you deal with it, that's your problem. But you know my character. I don't mess around. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I, heard and, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing him to me. Is this the first time he's done this? No. Second. What happened last time? He got rebuked. What happens this time? He gets rebuked. <laughs> okay. Clearly, he's a slow learner, right? He literally fell down before the angel once. The angel embarrassed him, said, get up. You don't get it. I'm just an angel. You need to worship God. Why in the world would he record that twice? I mean, maybe it's just humility, right? Maybe he's like, all right, I get it. I messed up twice. Or maybe he knew that the worship of angels was going to be a huge struggle for the church. And he wanted to tell him, listen, I fell for it twice. You guys do not do that. Right. However, or for whatever reason he included it, it's important. John, the apostle fell down in front of an angel to worship the angel. Why? Because the angel was stunning and because the angel was giving him the very words of life. You go, man, that's kind of silly. No, it's not. Every one of us would have done the exact same thing. But please do not mix the messenger with the God who sends it. That means ever with anyone. I don't care who the teacher is. I don't care who the pastor is. I don't care who it is on the radio. I don't care who it is on podcast, who it is on TV. They are merely a messenger, nothing more. They are not God. They did not give you the words of life as if they wrote them. It doesn't matter if you're looking at me. I'm ripping off material from God. You get that? I'm sharing this stuff and I didn't write it. I didn't save anybody. There is nothing in and of me that you put your faith in. It is God alone all the time. But boy, has worship of angels still been a problem through all these years? Yes, it has. Go through a YouTube selection and start examining all the ministries that are going around talking about how wonderful angels are and how there's an amazing movement in their church and it's all because of an angel. Whoa. No, we don't do that. It's about Jesus, period, right? Moves on. He said, but the angel said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets. I don't know if he meant that New Testament or Old Testament, but basically there's two definitions of prophecy. One is to foretell what God's going to do. The other one is to foretell what God is to do. Both of those are legitimate definitions for prophecy. In other words, if I tell you what the word says, I am acting as a prophet. When you tell a neighbor what the word of God says, you're acting as a prophet. It's actually a function. So maybe that's what he meant. He said, but I, cause he's just given him a message. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets and of all those who keep the words of this book, meaning carry them out. He said, worship God, whether you have good reasons uh, or good intentions, you just have to worship God. It can't be about something else. And then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why is that significant? 
Because in the Old Testament, one of the most popular and powerful prophets was Daniel. Do you remember that? What did God say to Daniel when he told him prophecy? He said, seal it up. Don't let anybody know about this part. But with John, he says, don't seal it up. Don't you shut this down. Why? Look at the next line. Because the time is near. Now, if you're trying to say, well, God really doesn't have a lot of words to work with. So he just says near, but he doesn't really mean near. He means stop. No. Obviously, he told Daniel, seal it up. It's not going to be for a while. He knows the phrase. God's pretty good at the English language or the Greek language or the Hebrew language. I think he can figure out a way to go. It's not yet. He said it all along. But this time he says, don't lock it up. People need it now. And I really believe that he was talking about the seven churches John was ministering to. He said they need this in their mail like yesterday. Get it out to them. Don't seal it up. Throw it out because they need encouragement. They need to know what's going on. They're dying. They're being persecuted. They're being sawn in two. They're being thrown into fire. They're being ripped apart. Do not keep this to yourself. They're dying out there. They need me. Get this message out. Let him who does wrong, this is a weird phrase, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to do vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. What does that mean? It cannot mean the obvious. What's the obvious? The obvious is, hey, if you're against God, eh, just keep doing it. It cannot mean reject evangelism because that's what this passage is about in just a few short verses he throws out an evangelistic message to call them to come to him so what does it mean i got five options for you ready to go here we go i think you'll i think you'll notice a pattern these are options for you number one jesus is coming so fast that what's the point in other words it's a motivating tool Going, man, he's coming. He's on his way. What's the point? Why are you going to change? Because that's how you've been living. You know, it's one of those reverse psychology things. You start messing with people's heads and you're just going, fine, just stay as you are. And then people go, oh, no, I want to change. Right. Maybe that's it. Or number two, a solemn warning that decision determines character. Meaning you've been selecting what kind of person you want to be all the time. Is that what you want to do? Or maybe number three, there's a time when it's too late to change. We're going to click over to where there's no more switching sides. Or is it number four? God's trying to say, listen, you have a freedom to walk to me. I'm not going to force you. You have a freedom. You want to act like that? Act like that. You want to walk to me? Walk to me. Maybe that's what he means. Or number five, if you don't heed the prophecy, you will be of the wicked. Maybe that's what he meant. Either way, do you see that there's a common theme that weaves through all of it, which is do something about it. I get the idea that, yes, you're hurtling down one pathway. Can we please change this? I'm about to give a call of evangelism, he says. I need someone to respond. Then he moves on. Behold, I am coming soon. Again and again and again, he says it. You can't make it anything else. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. This is an encouragement to believers because there's nothing about judgment in that phrase. He said, I have my reward with me. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Come here. Let me tell you what you've been doing. I've been watching. I haven't been ignoring any of this stuff. I get it. 
I've had my eye on what's going on. I know when you've been giving up stuff for me. I know when you've been sacrificing. I know when you've been loving on someone else. I know when you've been trying to get rid of the anger and the wrath in your life. I know what it is to struggle through your addiction. I've seen it all. And I want you to know I have a reward right here with me. I'm on my way. Right? Behold, I'm coming soon. Here's one other thing that I thought of as I was preaching last night. Knowing help is on the way makes all the difference. I remember one time um, I was um, involved in teaching a men's group. Um, we were out at the uh, RPM Raceway, right? Because guys get to do all the fun stuff, right? We're at a men's event. We were doing a little racing cars things. And I was up there and I was speaking, uh, telling everybody, you know, I was doing something important. I was sharing the gospel, right? I was talking to everybody. And all of a sudden, somebody's phone rings and they go, Lance, it's your wife. And I was like, What? I got on the phone. She had a kidney stone and had to go to the doctor immediately. I dropped everything. I said, I'm on my way. And I took off. There's something about when help is on the way, you relax a little bit. You all know the power of 911, right? There's this power in three numbers. Call 911, call 911, right? The minute you hit 911... There's this feeling that help is going to come. And even though your situation is still dire, there's a certain peace. Have you ever noticed how little kids act? When a little child falls down and hurts themselves, what do they do? Their immediate reaction is to lift their head and look where? Look for mom. Is someone going to rescue me? And what's funny is they won't cry till they see. Have you noticed that? They're immediately like, do I need to cry or am I holding on to this one? And they're looking around and they spot mom. And they're like, oh, God, you know, and they just fall apart, right? Why? Because hope is on the way. That's what this is. I'm on my way, guys. Something should go. I can do this. Behold, I'm coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, meaning the origin and the completion of all things. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that's to live forever and go through the gates into the holy city. You're like, oh, I I like that. I want to go there. I want to have that. All right, wash your robes. What does that mean? If you answer this wrong, your Christianity is bent in the wrong direction and it will ruin everything. How do you answer this question? If a command is given to you to wash your robes, what does that mean to you? Let that one soak down in your heart. You must get this right. The Bible says that when you talk about washing something, it has a lot to do with what? Righteousness. Purity. So when he tells you to wash your robes, some of you immediately jumped into the mindset of, what do I have to do? And you immediately launch on this process of how do I make myself perfect? 
How do I get clean enough to get to heaven? How do I do enough things for God to love me? How do I make it right? And you spend your whole Christian life doing that. Here's the sad news for you. The Bible said that the best that man can do and the best righteousness we can bring to the table is as filthy rags. The purpose is filthy. Your cleanest is garbage in comparison to perfection. Yeah? How do we wash our robes then? Well, it's intriguing because there's this enormous vat of blood that poured out at the foot of the cross. And Jesus paid it all. As Jesus shed his blood that we might be clean, he did everything. And you wash your robes in blood and they become whiter than snow. It's always been Jesus. It's not you. You're not ever going to be good enough to get into heaven. It's always Jesus. And he's saying, here, I've bled plenty. I've already done it. I did all the heavy lifting. Wash your robes in my blood. I'm the only one that will make you clean. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That is the extension of eternal life. The free gift in Christ. When you wash your robes, you must always bring them to Jesus. Don't do it on your own. It moves on. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. But outside are the dogs. Now, when it says outside the city, it means in the lake of fire. We've already been notified where all the wicked have gone. They're all in the lake of fire. Who is in the lake of fire? Well, it uses a similar list, almost an identical list to last time, which we studied. There's one new additional word, dogs, right at the beginning. Now, as an animal lover, this is highly offensive, right? I like dogs. Well, dogs was a derogatory term, still is in the Middle East and some other areas. Dogs and the dogs back there, especially in the ancient world, were not the cute little dogs that you walk around. They were the nasty, gnarly, mean, I will attack you for no reason, I'm eating garbage dogs. So they were known as unclean. The unclean dogs, don't let that thing around me. Get it out of the house. This thing is freaky, right? You would use that as a derogatory term for anyone that you wanted to call unclean. So the Jews had a famous phrase, and they called dogs what group of people? All us. Gentiles. Anyone that's not a Jew, you're a dog. You're unclean. You are not fit for the kingdom of God. That was the idea in their minds. Outside of the dogs, is he talking about Gentiles? No, he's not. He's talking about that which is unclean. However, there is another possibility of what it means, even though it's, it's, it's small. In Deuteronomy, there's a really weird phrase. It says, do not bring the money from a female prostitute into my house, nor the money from dogs. And you're like, when did dogs get jobs? I don't understand. Why, why are they tithing? That's so odd. They're trying to earn their way to heaven too, apparently. All right. But in Deuteronomy 23, 18, it refers to female prostitutes and dogs. There is some evidence, and I don't know how solid it is. I didn't go back and study it myself. But there's some evidence that in ancient literature, there's a reference that dogs are male prostitutes. So it's the female prostitutes and the male prostitutes 
those are the two classifications. So right here, it would have said those that are sexually immoral on the male side of things, they're also outside. Does that make sense? Um, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That means everyone who's traded God for something else. That's what it means. They're on the outside. They joined with the enemy. If you're not for me, you're against me, God said. In the same way, all these refer to something in John's day. The Roman Empire and all the persecution, these were the types of people that were persecuting the Christians. These were the types of people that were giving up on Jesus to go have something of their own. So then Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. In other words, and I endorse this message. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Remember the seven churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. All right. This is kind of a weird phrase. He's referring to Isaiah 11.1. 1. It's a prophecy that the Messiah would be the root or an offspring, not necessarily the root, but the offspring, the shoot of David. Jesus said, I'm both. I am the root by which he came from, and I am the offspring from his lineage. That's a weird concept. What does it mean? He meant, where do you think the Jews came from? I'm the one that started the Jews, so everything that's Jewish came from me. I'm the cause of all of it. I'm the one that made them my chosen people. I started everything. But I also, as Messiah, came through the line of the Jews after David, and I am both the beginning and the offshoot. Now, in contrast to that which is under the ground and unseen, the root and base he says, and I'm the bright morning star all the way up in the sky. This is one of the most amazing pictures of who Jesus is. The bright morning star. What's so intriguing about it is what is the morning star? The morning star is the kind of starlight, star bright, first star, see tonight for the morning, right? It's the idea that when the morning star shows up, it shows up in the blackest of night. And it announces the arrival of the dawn. It means now that the star is here, night is done. Jesus, in the darkest of all of history, shows up and says the darkness is done. I'm bringing about the dawn of a bright new day and nothing's going to shut me down. I am heralding the arrival of a new day. Pretty powerful. The spirit and the bride say come. I believe that refers to the Holy Spirit calling out to the churches. It says, let him who hears what the spirits say, right? The spirit says, the spirit and the bride, the bride is the church. They say, come, meaning come to Jesus. And let him who hears, meaning all of us Christians who just heard this message, we're supposed to go out with a message that says, come to Jesus, right? So here, what's the point? Let's make it real practical. You've got to evangelize. You have to share your faith. No more excuses. No more whining. No more, what about this? I don't know anything. You know enough. You know your testimony. You know who Jesus is a little bit. And I want you to get out there because people are dying and they're going to hell fast. And you have a bridge to Jesus. Stop keeping it to yourself. Oh, well, it's kind of a private matter between me and God. No, it's not. No, you're wrong. 
How do I know that? Because you're called salt and light. If you're not shining anything and you're not being salt and preservative, you're useless. Stop telling me that it's a personal matter. It's not a personal matter. It's a community matter. He did not save you just for you to go to heaven. He saved you and set you right in the middle of a dark place that you might shine some light. Now, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that you need to evangelize in the irritating fashion that you're picturing right now. That's not biblical. Let me be that irritating guy at work that never does any work and runs around and says, so, uh, you know, Jesus, you know what? Get back to work, right? Nobody likes that guy. Okay. Here's the deal. You share Jesus from your heart because you love the person you're talking to. You share him naturally. You share him with what you know. You don't come out arrogant. You don't come out and start arguments. You don't run around and try to shove things down people's throat. That's not loving. It's not right. Yes, sometimes do you have to drop it on the line and go, hey, I'm just telling you, man, I love you way too much to sit there and let you keep going the way you're going. I just got to tell you, you are hellbound, brother. If you've got a relationship where you can do that and he can receive that, great. But if you don't have a relationship, you do not walk in, you are in the right to walk in. And you share naturally, you talk about being able to pray for them, you love on them, you let them know what is going on in your life. I didn't tell you to run out and tell everybody what to do. That's not right. You don't know everything. But don't keep him inside. Why would you let them die? If you say you love them, share whether or not they accept it and work with it. That's God's business. That ain't your business. But it's your job to throw a seed. If God makes it grow, run on. If he doesn't, that's his business. But it's not a personal matter. Stop saying that. Whoever is thirsty... Let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I have to apologize right now to all the Calvinists. That's a pretty open phrase. Whoever. It's this wide open, broad statement. You thirsty? Come here. The Calvinist is like, oh, the only reason you're thirsty is because God said you needed to be thirsty. Okay, I get it. I get it. We can play that game. Our job is to walk out into the world and say, are you thirsty? Jesus is here. Are you hungry? He's the bread of life. If you are dying, I have a solution. And it's in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what it's all about. This wide open Jesus is going, come on. What do you think I'm waiting for? Let's get in here. Come on, we can do this. I will rescue you. You're making a mess of it anyway. Come on. You know that. You know you have violated against me. You know in the deep part of your heart, you're not right. Let me clean it up. Fall before me. Let me clean you up. Then hmm. it closes with this. I warn everyone, John said. 
Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That would be bad. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, for whatever reasons, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Okay, I don't want to get into a once saved, always saved argument on this. It's a really weird phrase. But I want to tell you this. You don't want to be this person. Don't mess with God's word. And it means don't mess with it in a manipulative sense. Don't adjust the message so it tells people what you want them to know. Tell them what it is as you see it. If you are trying to remain faithful to the word and presenting it out, there's honor in that. But don't use it for your own purposes. Don't go, I'm only going to share this part of the Bible because that's what I believe and that's the only one I want to show so people all agree with me. That's wicked. You don't do that. You share all of it. This is what God says. I don't understand most of it, but it's what God says. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus, meaning be the master that we know you are. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And with that, the book closes. With that, the canon of Scripture closes. The Bible closes. Can you imagine what we have learned? Can you imagine over the last 36 weeks of study what has been revealed? Right? Isn't that what the title is? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus better? That's what it's about. Do you know your Lord more? If you, didn't, if you don't, you missed everything. If you do, man, are you blessed. And maybe someday, when you are ready again, you'll read it again. You'll dive back through and go, ah, I got all these notes and this will be exciting and I can go look at this and you can start sharing with other people what you've learned. That's great. But it's got to lead to transformation. It's got to lead to heart change. Jesus is coming soon. And it means we need to be watchful and we need to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready to go? Because he could be right around the corner right now. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for a wonderful study running through this incredible book that lord so much of it was over my head and yet you still blessed us you still took care of us you still showed brilliant things to immature children i pray lord that it would not have fallen on deaf ears but lord that it would fall onto ground that would reproduce it 100 fold that everything we've heard would be translated into life change and that we would share it with everyone around us. God, inspire our hearts to love on those that you died for. In Jesus' name, amen.